This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, and I'm here today with Aline Sanduk. Hello. And Miranda Skeen. Hello. And if you listen closely, you might sense the presence of another person. It's Dr. Martin McCary, John Hopkins surgeon, best-selling author, health policy expert. Uh, Dr. McCary collaborated with Atul Gawande at Hopkins to develop the surgery checklist. Through his latest book is entitled The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. It's due out in September, and we're so grateful that, uh, that uh, he's on the show today. Thank you for uh, coming to the Short Code Podcast. Great to be with you guys. I love your show and uh, excited to be here. Oh, thank awesome. you. What an awesome thing to hear. <laughs> <laughs> it's so mutual. <laughs> so your your book, uh, The Price We Pay, is about the causes of the high cost of healthcare in the United States. And we got the opportunity to uh, sort of preview the first chapter. Um, and I don't think you'd object if I said it was sort of an indictment of the of the way that hospitals and insurance companies um, go about determining the cost of various procedures. I would say, D Dave, right now, people are getting crushed out there by medical bills. And the cost of health care is draining the entire economy. We don't have money for uh, important reforms, for education, for uh, all kinds of programs and priorities in the United States because of the cost of health care. And you see businesses fleeing the United States. You see families getting crushed now by bills. Um, so we got a serious problem. And so what I wanted to do in this book, The Price We Pay, is first of all, be positive, because I'm very optimistic about the future of health care. And it's because of young people like yourselves. It's because of the millennials that have a, a total intolerance for BS. And it's because <laughs> so of, um, I think, a real commitment to social justice, uh, maybe as sort of a backlash of a prior generation that, you know, glamorized big homes and having a lot of money. So I'm very optimistic. And this book, The Price We Pay, was an attempt to really be positive by pointing out a broken part of the healthcare system and then the people who are working to change it and how that change is super refreshing. So that was really why I wrote it. Did, did you see the movie The Big Short? Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that um, in your in your chapter. Um, what did you think of that movie? Um, I think raising awareness uh, can be made much more effective by making people laugh. Um, and I think they they did a really nice job of taking, I mean, exactly as you said, taking something very complicated and nuanced um, and making it funny and thought provoking at the same time and, and making it understandable for lay people who would, you know, don't have a financial background at all. Yeah, I loved it because I felt like it took a very complex subject, the banking industry, and made it understandable to any everyday person and even exciting to the point where you leave feeling like, I now understand exactly how Wall Street works. 
And so healthcare is the same. It's nebulous. People don't understand it. And I wanted a, a reader to finish reading this book, The Price We Pay, and feel like now I finally understand how the business of medicine works from A to Z. And in a way, that's exciting and not boring because nobody wants to read a policy or, or business of medicine book. But, you know, in medical school, we teach medical literacy. We teach the language of medicine, but we don't teach healthcare literacy. There's nothing mm -hmm. about the business of medicine that's worth its weight that is a part of our formal training. Instead, they're hammering you guys with the Krebs cycle and the urea cycle. <laughs> and, this, you know. and they're so simple. You know, yeah. there's plenty of room to add more. <laughs> <laughs> but well, well, no one's ever needed to know a molecular intermediary of the urea cycle in the trauma bay. That I can guarantee you. <laughs> It's like we have computers now and there's Google. So it's like mm -hmm. you got to tell your professors, yeah. why are we memorizing this stuff? You know, a, a past guest on the show suggested that, you know, medical students don't need to worry about how this all works. Just learn the medicine. It sounds like you might disagree with that. Yeah, that's why we're in the problem, the, the, the crisis that we're in right now. We've lost control of the finances of medicine. We've lost control of how billing is done for our, our own services. Mm -hmm. We have a family member. You cannot give them uh, you know, a complimentary uh, service or a discount on their bill. You, we have no control over the billing. And it's not just the billing. Medicine is loaded in the last 10 years with tens of thousands of new millionaires that healthcare has created that are non-patient facing. The middle industry is so big, it's consuming. And if you look at you know, some systems, the doctors are almost treated like civil servants, where when they say, hey, mm -hmm. we got a patient safety issue, or hey, we can design care better, they're treated like, oh, you're just an employee. We run the health system. And I think you know, enough is enough. We've hit a boiling point now where the system has gotten so bad in certain parts. I mean, look at primary care. Burnout rates are at record high levels. And you see doctors fighting back and say, hey, we're going to start from scratch. We're going to scrap this entire billing tread, uh, treadmill. We're not going to bill. We're going to get a lump sum payment called direct primary care or what they call a globally capitated payment, which is a mm -hmm. another type of lump sum payment for clinics like Iora and ChenMed, where they do no billing and their entire billing rooms in the clinic are converted to cooking classes for diabetics and yoga studios. And you see doctors standing up to say, hey, we want to do things differently. This is very broken. So uh, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to uh, heap praise on this perspective um, that you're sharing of you know, physicians kind of taking back control um, of their profession, of our profession, and reclaiming their role as healers and not just uh, customer service, uh, customer service employees, because that's often what it feels like, I think, for a lot of med students, um, or at least it did for me when I was going through uh, the first years of med school. You know, I, I wanted to come to medicine to be a healer. Um, and healing, you know, is multifaceted and it's complex, but a lot of the focus of our training is on the things that insurance companies will pay for, um, which is mostly procedures and medication. Um, and there's really no room for some of these, you know, more 
I don't know, um, less conventional ways of promoting healing, like rest and, um, you know, some of the things that you're describing, cooking classes, nutrition. Nutrition is something we've talked about on the show where we get very little nutrition training. And most of it is rooted in our medical biochemistry coursework, yeah. which is not um, super applicable. It doesn't really prepare us to talk to patients about that. So I'm really encouraged to hear you say that, you know, physicians are taking back control after sort of ceding control and, and seeing things get away from them. <laughs> it is amazing how the big questions medicine has almost no answer for, like what food we should eat. And actually so what, what we've been teaching has by and large been wrong, right? We mm -hmm. hammered for 50 years that people should avoid fat, even though there's zero evidence to support that saturated fat causes heart disease. And yet, you know, the field of nutrition science has been corrupted and the stuff that trickles down, the little of it we get has been, um, you know, tampered. So we, we leave and then we go into practice and you see this obese patient show up in the clinic and, you know, they say, I'm trying to lose some weight. And what's the doc tell them? Well, avoid fat, right? And mm -hmm. we're telling them the wrong thing because it moves into a high carb diet, which is more addictive. And obesity is largely sugar addiction. So um, rest, you know, you mentioned rest. You know, it's, it's very compelling right now, the, argue, the scientific arguments that poor sleep on a chronic basis causes Alzheimer's. It's one of the drivers of Alzheimer's. It is so obvious if you look at, if you're up all night as a medical student and someone does a spinal tap on you the next day, it's going to have a lot of the amyloid and, and tall plaques in that spinal fluid. Do you think anyone's made that association? Um, these are the things that are unstudied, right, or unmeasured. And um, so we have been in this very narrow vocabulary of Krebs cycle, urea cycle, memorize this, regurgitate that. Mm -hmm. But people nowadays, students are saying, hey, what about low inflammatory foods? What about the biome? What about mm -hmm. meditation and rest? What about, you know, other treatment uh, options, including lifestyle medicine? And, and so you're seeing this whole new field of lifestyle medicine emerge. So it sounds like from what you're saying that a certain amount of this is convention, that part of the justification for this is, well, this is the way it's always been taught and this is the way it's always been done. And so part of that would be speaking, well, why are we still doing this? And so that's kind of something interesting that I'm kind of hearing you talk about. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> if you look at the people deciding what you should learn in medical school, they're, they look alike. They're old white men that are part of this medical establishment that sends down the curriculum. Listen, you, you said it, not us. <laughs> you said it. You're the professional. Well, I mean, diverse, diverse, look, I, look, we had a... Um, chairman of the board come from AT&T where diversity was his big agenda. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh my God, you know, let's just take care of patients. What is this diversity agenda? This is kind of soft, fluffy. I'm not into it. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I realized, I must say, I became totally convinced that when you have diversity of ideas, of opinions, of people's ethnic background, of, of age, you know, having young people in conversations, um, that entirely impacts what you value. And so, um, 
and I'm a huge believer right now that if you had, if you guys were on the AAMC board to decide what's going to be on the um, USMLE exams, I'm pretty sure you would not have forced memorization of the urea cycle and Krebs cycle or the parts of the flagellum on there. Oh, you're talking about that exam of medical trivia that we have oh, to yeah. take to get licensed. Yeah, there's um. There's a lot of evidence to show that, like, even from a cold and calculating standpoint, um, you know, organizations and multinationals that make diversity a priority see huge gains in their profits. And it's just, you know, different and more voices contribute to a, just better solutions and better approaches to problems. Mm. You, you know, in, in writing about the experiences of one patient, you described his, fa I guess it was his family's experience trying to ascertain the price of a procedure as being akin to bartering in an open-air Egyptian market. Yeah, sure. So there was a, a guy whose dad needed heart surgery, and he was told, um, the, 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 the family was told, oh, it's going to cost like a quarter million dollars. And the family was like, hey, wait a minute. Um, we have a friend of the family who knows another surgeon, and they can do it for, you know, under $10,000 in France. And so they went back to the hospital who was basically harassing them, like, we need to schedule this, you have to get it done, and it need, needs to be done in the next six weeks or so. You know, it wasn't emergent. And the family came back and said, look, we, we found a place that can do it for under $10,000, tenfold less. And the hospital came down and slashed the price in half and then cut it in half again and cut it in half. And literally, they're walking out of the hospital and they grab this guy and they're like, okay, we can like do double of what the other guy can do. And I'm like, this is not the Egyptian bazaar. Like this is not the free market of, you know, selling little penance when you go to, you know, Italy and tour Rome. This is, you know, this is a disgrace. Yeah. I mean, this is a disgrace. And this researcher from the University of Iowa called a hundred places that do heart surgery and asked the simple question, how much does it cost for a cabbage? And half the places after he harassed them would give him a price. The other half never did. Of the ones who gave him a price that ranged from 40-some thousand to half a million dollars. There was no incredible. correlation between the price and the outcomes, according to the STS database, which is the most mature public reporting database in medicine. It's in cardiac surgery for cabbage. There's no correlation, right? And there's no correlation between charity care. Our research has shown that at Hopkins. So why do you, you know, what's going on? There's this massive price gouging going on in the market. And if, it's the, if there's a business model that describes the modern day healthcare system, it's that in the last five plus years, people, middlemen, non-physicians, non-patient facing folks have figured out that if you take things off the master bill or bill a patient directly, you can price gouge them and sometimes make more money. So, so there are two excuses that we usually hear um, from people in the healthcare system for the markups. Um, there's the cost of charity work and the fact, so that's one. And then the fact that no one is really expected to pay the asking price for anything. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we've sort of covered the second one um, with the Egyptian, the, the Egyptian open air bazaar metaphor. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's kind of weird. And I think I would be, I think I would be completely put off as a patient mm -hmm. by that whole interaction. That, like, that's aggressive for a used car salesman. Right. A surgeon. <laughs> yeah. Right. I have to admit, um, as I was listening 
to you describe the situation, Dr. McCary. The other analogy I was thinking of is that it's like dealing with the mob. Yeah. You're like, how much does the surgery cost? How, mu how much is it worth to you? That's right. <laughs> how much do you want to pay for do this? Do you want your loved one to live? Um, yeah. But but there's also the, the other the other excuse I mentioned is the cost of charity work, the cost of providing health care to people who can't afford it. Um, so basically, if we apply the same scientific methods to that question that we apply in other areas of science, like cancer research and heart disease research, we would find out the answer is no. Hmm. Price gouging is dependent on how much the market will allow someone to gouge. So let me give you an example. And, and there's research by my colleague Jerry Anderson at, at Johns Hopkins that supports this, and we've, I've seen it numerous times in the marketplace. This is kind of healthcare business 101. It is not associated with charity care. Everybody needs to know that. There are only rare situations where we see that it's the case. And by the way, charity care is not gouging somebody and then accepting a reasonable amount and calling that delta charity care. Okay, mm -hmm. building a building for your own hospital is not considered community benefit, in my opinion, <laughs> even though sometimes that's how it's listed on the nonprofit status. Um, so the other argument that nobody pays these, well, first of all, let me, in, at Vail, okay, at Vail Mountain, by the way, poor people don't go to Vail Mountain if you've ever <laughs> no been there, kidding. okay? Yeah, yeah. You, you buy a hamburger for what? You know, 50 oh, bucks? Yeah. <laughs> Um, they played everything with gold. <laughs> yeah. 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 You could buy a scarf for, you know, $4,000. <laughs> so at Vail Mountain, when skiers get hurt and they go to the local hospital that serves Vail Mountain, um, they get charged five or 10 times the blue book price in America. Uh, somebody I know went there, I had research I have in the book. Got charged ten thousand dollars when he was told, "Hey, you got a little altitude sickness." The nurse kind of said, "Hey, you, you might as well go home. I wouldn't even let the doctor see you." He, th he said, oh, "I'll just get checked out anyway. I have good insurance." He got charged ten thousand dollars out of network for what? For being told he had, you know, altitude sickness. Now, are there so much? Is there so much charity care at <laughs> Vail Ski Mountain? That <laughs> so true. Uh, well, somebody's got to run this, the chairlift. It just seems like the problem that you're pointing out is that, you know, in a free market system, which is kind of this, the, the system that we're applying to healthcare, you know, a free market system, consumers have the right to shop around and what gives them leverage is being able to get up and get up from the negotiating table and walk away. But Consumers and health, like consumers and healthcare, don't have that option if their lives depend on the care that they, you know, are not even sure that they need. They don't have the medical knowledge to know if it's appropriate or not. Like there, the one story um, that you mentioned in your writing about a woman who needed something removed from her finger and they put her under general anesthesia, and not being a medical professional already, she was protesting against that and they made her do it anyway and then charge her out the nose for it. It just seems like we, we need a cultural shift where we start looking at patients as recipients of care as opposed to consumers of care. Yeah. I, I love that. You know, I think, um, you're spot on. We need more honesty in medicine. I mean, we need to just restore medicine to where it has been historically. I mean, our student, the students at Johns Hopkins and a bunch of other medical schools have 
started this grassroots effort called Restoring Medicine. And I, I've been privileged to support them and facilitate and help them out as sort of a faculty advisor. But this thing is, is national and, and it's getting big. And there's a face, Facebook group, Restoring Medicine, a website, restoringmedicine.org. They're basically saying, look, we have an incredible heritage of trust, of public trust in the medical profession. Let's keep it that way. This, all this gouging, all these dirty business practices, they're threatening this great medical heritage. Right? When we take an oath, I mean, that's serious. When a patient comes to see you as a third-year medical student in the emergency room and trusts you to put a knife to their skin within seconds of meeting you, it's because of that great medical public trust. It's because of our heritage, right? It's because of our forefathers in the field. Yeah, um, how, They'll tell you secrets. They wouldn't tell their spouse. Why? Because you're the doctor. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now we've got a quarter of the public not trusting us and getting gouged by private equity companies coming in and buying physician groups and then pulling them out of insurance networks and hitting them with surprise bills. These are groups, they specifically buy groups that are where patients don't have a choice. These publicly traded companies on Wall Street are buying emergency room doctor groups, anesthesia. You don't pick your anesthesiologist, right? right. You're buying anesthesia group, neonatology, mm. um, radiologists. Those are the groups private equity is buying. Why do you think they're buying those groups? Mm. Because you don't have a choice and they can price gouge you. Oh, that's really interesting. So are... are so are hospitals and insurance companies in cahoots here, or are they sort of fighting against each other and, you know, that's what's causing this, um, this, this uh, movement towards price gouging and, and weird medical costs? Well, everybody's making a lot of money off the system. And the direct answer to your question is it's regional. It depends on... The, the, the locale. So in New York City, you can deliver a baby for $65,000 for an uncomplicated labor, labor and delivery. That's what Columbia, New York Presbyterian will charge you for an uncomplicated, charge your insurance company. Okay. Now, are they gouging? Actually, that's the rate that the insurance company negotiated with the hospital. Why would they negotiate such a high rate? Well, what happens when an insurance company pays a lot of money out? They increase their premiums the following year. Because of the medical loss ratio that was a part of the Affordable Care Act, <clears throat> there was an attempt to limit profits of an insurance company to 20%. So they created a regulation. Well, if you're an insurance company and you can only take 20% as profit, what are you going to do? You have an incentive, and I don't want to say they're diabolical, but passively, the more you collect in premiums, that's 20% of a bigger number that you can keep as profit. Mm -hmm. So what was an attempt to regulate greed backfired, and all you have to do is read the ProPublica article by Marshall Allen of the insurance company executive who got a joint replacement for $70,000 when he knows the going price is twenty. And he was like, what the heck? Who negotiated this $70,000 <laughs> price? And he, he, basically the conclusion of the article is, hey, life is good for everybody, for the hospital and for the insurance company when those prices are high, except for the poor patient. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a really important insight. Um, something we were talking about before the show, um, this question that Dave raised about whether or not hospitals and insurance companies are working together or against each other. Um, one idea that came up is that maybe what's contributing to the cost is, you know, these armies of administrators that are, you know, negotiating, trying to get money and keep money. And I wonder, you know, where do, where do you think we can do something actionable there? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say, you guys are awesome. And the reason I love my job and the reason I'm optimistic about healthcare, despite all these problems, is that medical students today are saying enough is enough. And we've got a group of medical students from University of Oklahoma, from Johns Hopkins, from all over, who are joining me now to help patients who are getting stuck with these sticker price bills. Dave, you said that hospitals will routinely respond with when they're presented with a high bill and they'll say, oh, nobody pays that bill. Yeah. Well, guess what? Let me show you millions of people in the United States who do pay that bill. Out of network people are asked to pay that bill. The Amish pay that bill. People are, that are part of a faith-based co-op are expected to pay that bill. The uninsured are expected to pay that bill. Unless you qualify for financial aid, which is sometimes pretty a pretty narrow group and a big process, or Medicaid, which is not your hardworking minimum wage employee who's the mom of two kids making $35,000, life is hell for them. And there's more of them than there are rich people like us. Mm -hmm. And 50% of America has less than $400 of cash on hand. We've got to remember that. When they get hit with one of these bills, our research team at Johns Hopkins, again, led by students, has found um, that there's a massive trend in the United States towards suing patients for unpaid bills for these sticker price bills that the hospitals say no one's expected to pay, and then going after their wages, garnishing their paychecks, putting liens on their homes, and sometimes ruining their credit history so they have to pay more in their mortgage payments. This yeah. is 10% of hospitals, according to our early research in the sample we did in Florida, in uh, Virginia. Um, the students are going with me to the courthouses and we find people who are lined up being sued by their local hospital and they say, hey, we want to provide help. We want to be your medical expert in this case. And will you let Dr. McCary be the medical expert on your case for free? Well, of course, everybody we bump into says yes. When the yeah. cases go before the judge, I get up there and I make my case. Judge, this patient does not owe this money. There's no legal contract. The price is overinflated. Sometimes the services were unnecessary. It was over, represented over treatment. And the judges are canceling the cases. Right now, every wow. case where my name goes on that case, the hospitals are canceling the bills. That's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And it's a disgrace that our professions come to this point. You, you mentioned um, the Amish. And that was uh, one of the things can, that you uh, wrote about in this chapter that we got to read. Can you take us through that situation? Um, because it seems like, you know, well, take us through that situation because it seems like paying cash as the Amish like to do is a sure way to pay more in the system. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> first of all, the, the students were really the heroes of 
this new book, The Price We Pay, which you know goes through all these stories. You know, I firmly believe if you're going to understand race relations in the United States, you need to be proximate. If you're going to understand the coal industry in the United States, you need to get to a coal mine and listen to the workers there and hear their story. So you, we need to be proximate. In healthcare, people calling the shots are a ruling class that are not proximate, and they make their own rules. Like we get to sue you for a bill that you didn't sign a contract for. Okay, so these um, students come with me, and we get into the homes of a single mom with two kids who's been sued by her hospital. And we go to the mechanic where her car has been for a month because she hasn't had the money to pay the mechanic and she has to take the bus to work. Okay, we need to get proximate. And that's what I love about what the students are doing with us. In the case of the Amish, we went to Amish country where actually I'm from that area. I'm, I'm from Danville, Pennsylvania in central Pennsylvania in the sticks. Mm -hmm. And the Amish just south of there, like you said, Dave, they show up with cash from the farmer's market to pay their medical bills. Now, some hospitals like Lancaster General have come up with really forgiving policies for the Amish where they work out a, spe a separate deal. But a lot of places, they get subject to this kind of price gouging. So the Amish community takes the train, half the time they get something serious, for six days to Mexico. The Amish you know, migrate from Indiana and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio for six days on the Amtrak train, they connected Pittsburgh. We went the whole route, okay? They go to wow. Mexico. Why would they go to Mexico? And we have great hospitals like Johns Hopkins and University of Pennsylvania right there because they're hungry for honesty in pricing. And what's that say about our system, right? So the Amish, you know, are starving for this, uh, we found, for this honesty and um, it, you know, it um, it said a lot about this system, it said a lot about the system. It seems like medical tourism is becoming more and more the norm, where even the cost of traveling to that country on top of the cost of care there is still cheaper than getting it done here. Is that a phenomenon that you've come across a lot out, just outside of the Amish community traveling to Mexico? Or have you encountered people maybe who travel to Canada for similar reasons? Um, actually... The value proposition at some of these foreign destinations is a really good one. And there are these sort of medical migration patterns. You see them all over the world. People from, you know, Asia go to Singapore. You see, you know, certain icon hospitals. Um, there, there's actually a hospital in Oklahoma City hey, that hey. is offering great pricing. And it's not really a hospital, it's a surgery center. But this guy who basically, Keith Smith, who's head of the Oklahoma Surgery Center of Oklahoma, said this silly game of marking up medical prices and then offering these secret discounts depending on who's paying is for the birds, right? You don't go to a restaurant and ask for a menu and they say, oh, who's your employer? And then <laughs> give you a menu that's you know jacked up based on the fact you work for the University of Iowa. No, that's ridiculous, right? So he's like, screw this. I'm offering a transparent price list. I don't care who's paying. I don't care if it's an insurance company or an individual or a foreigner. It's going to be one honest price. Well, guess, guess what's happening to a surgery center? People from all over the world and the United States mostly are flocking 
because they're hungry for an honest and fair price. It's not the cheapest price, but it's honest, right? So a joint replacement is $15,000. you are not going to run the risk of getting a $70,000 joint, $70, joint replacement there. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you know, people don't mind paying a high price for a service that they know that they need if they believe in good faith that the person that they're talking to has done their due diligence and has you know, worked hard to give them the most reasonable price that they can, even if it's high. Just having that, that trust and that foundation of mutual respect, which seems to have gone away in the system that you're, you're describing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, people will pay for quality. But once we get price transparency of real prices, not these inflated charge master prices, you're going to see a mass market move towards competitiveness around quality, right? Once we get prices out there and people say, oh, you know, the Brigham and Women's Hospital is charging six times more as South Shore Hospital for an uncomplicated labor and delivery. Well, let's look at their C-section rates. Let's look at their comorbidity index scores. Let's look at, you know, the number of high-risk pregnancies. And what you're going to see is finally competition enter into healthcare, so that we can get rid of some of this waste and egregious markup. So right now, if you want to deliver a baby in Boston, the price ranges from $6,000 at, say, South Shore Hospital or Stewart to $40,000-plus at some of the you know partners hospitals, the so-called Harvard hospitals. Now, it's the you know it's the same quality score at Stewart as it is. Matter of fact, it's a lot of times it's the same doctors. They shift from one hospital to another. Gosh. So it's essentially why, the same care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's one guy in Boston who basically said, "Look, I want I would like my employees to go to the six thousand, seven thousand dollar hospitals." to deliver their babies instead of the $40,000 hospitals. But I don't want to have to tell them where they can and can't go. I want them to make that decision based on their relationship with their doctor and the quality of the center. So I'm just going to offer them free diapers and wipes for a year if they deliver at the $6,000 hospitals. <laughs> and, so guess where everybody's delivering and he's saving a ton of money. And Strong seeing- motivator for parents. Uh, I can tell you that. <laughs> we'll throw in that anti-scratch covering for your car for free. <laughs> Just for you. you uh, one of the things you mentioned in, in the book is that healthcare might be experiencing a bubble in much the same way as what contributed to the 2008 housing market crash or the dot-com bubble at the turn of the last century, which I have no idea if our listeners will remember. Um, and some of our listeners were uh, in middle school. Yeah. Um, elementary school. But the point is, I mean, can you take us through why you think th- this cost crisis could be similar to those economic problems? Because one of the things that contributed to the bubble popping basically is people regaining their sense, you know, investors regaining their senses and saying, Hey, wait a minute, this is too, this is too much. Like maybe realizing that it's not sustainable long term. I mean, it sounds like people are coming to that realization, but then we've got all these forces that are, you know, sort of entrenched, pushing back probably on, on, you know, what could be a revolution. Um, so I guess I'm, I guess I'm wondering, you know, like for, 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 for many people, there is no choice. You know, you just, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Um, and so it seems, it seems like hard to imagine this bubble bursting 
effectively when that's the case? Yeah. So basically, remember um, in the 2008 financial crisis, people came together. Didn't matter if they were Republicans or Democrats. We were in a crisis, right? We were maybe hours away from ATM machines all freezing up in the United States, right? It would have been, you know, worse than the Great Depression. And what you saw is people come together and competent, ethical folks say, how do we fix this? Let's stop playing games and let's just talk about how do we fix this? Well, healthcare right now is a $3.5 trillion bloated microeconomy in, in the United States. It's not even micro, it's one, one in five dollars. Wow. And mm. when you look at entire cities that have been revitalized by their hospitals growing, is that really something to be proud of when the largest buildings in a post-industrial city are now healthcare towers? I mean, they're essentially doing things on their own people, right? And we need to just take a step back and listen to doctors. And I worry about this house of cards coming down and really changing the medical profession for the worse. Because doctors are telling us right now all the warning signs. The number one warning sign they're saying is that 21% of medical care is unnecessary. Mm. CAT scans, you know, stents. You know, we, we went through this. We talked to cardiologists who were telling us about unnecessary stents put in people's leg arteries. There's nothing really <laughs> wrong with the patient, right? It's just... Let's do a health screening at your local church, and we'll tell you how your circulation is. Even though a United States Preventive Services Task Force guideline says no one should be screened for peripheral vascular disease. So I think if we listen to the voice of doctors and we get at this 21% of medical care that's unnecessary, um, we're going to take it. We're going to turn the ship in the right direction, and I, it's happening. Good stuff is happening. Improvingwisely.org is sort of the middle of the book where we talk about this incredible movement within medicine to move towards more appropriate care. We don't talk about appropriateness. You know, when you go through med school, we, we beat you with, you know, memorize, regurgitate, memorize, regurgitate. And the only way you can learn all this nonsense is to pair everything, right? You yeah. learn diagnosis, treatment, you pair things. And you come out with this almost reflex. And what we lose is the sense of appropriateness. Of care, right? Is it appropriate to start an 80 year old on a statin? Yeah. You know, you made it to 80. He won. You know, what? <laughs> he beat the odds. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm going to tell my dad you said that. <laughs> I, I feel like what you're describing is consumer culture taken too far in an inappropriate way. Yeah. And, and doctors are not bad people, right? But we have no, data course. now that looks at over-screening rates in older patients. We have data showing that the average senior in the United States is on 11 medications. And that's, wow. that's too wow. much, right? It's too much. We've excluded in our data, by the way, again, all research done by medical students uh, with my research team at Johns Hopkins. Um, some doctors have their average seniors on 25 medications as a practice average for that doctor. Jeez, now, it's got to be hard to troubleshoot when things are <laughs> when things are not working, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this is um, this is the treadmill that people are saying, hey, we don't want to be in these 10, 15 minute interviews, right? I remember as a medical student on internal medicine, I went to some clinic 
and the first patient came in at eight o'clock and they're asking me questions and I didn't know the answer. And I was like, I'll get back to you. And I was trying to get the history and it's like time was up and I ran out thinking I'm going to go back in there and do it right. And then you realize there's another patient. And after an hour, I was basically like rationing care among four patients. And I was like, are we doing this all day? Cause I'm like totally burned out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, by the way, um, we love, just as a general tip, we love as attending physicians, hyper-communicators as students. So mm-hmm. when you, ro- when you rotate, <laughs> I mean, normally it's a skill set that is annoying in the real world. Mm-hmm. People just, you know, talk and text and hyper-communicate all the time. They just, you can't shut them up. Normally those people are annoying in the real world. Mm-hmm. But in, on, sur- on your surgical rotation... We love people that are hyper communicators, you know, uh, do you want me to stand here? Where would you, can I go down to the emergency room and check on that patient? What do you think about this situation that's going on there? Is there any way I can be helpful? Are you going to the bathroom or should I stand here by the <laughs> That's wonderful to hear as, you know, a group of medical students that voluntarily signed up to spend an hour hearing themselves talk into microphones. So this is a <laughs> encouraging thing to hear. <laughs> You guys will do very well in your surgical rotation. My my, uh, senior partner, maybe the most famous surgeon in the United States, John Cameron, says uh, when he interviews the students, he says, I want to know who communicates well and I want to know who likes sports. And I'm like, why do you you care about sports? Why, Why is that part of every interview he does with medical students? And he says, if you can't talk about at least one sport, it doesn't matter which sport sport it is it could be billards right it could be anything it could be ping pong if you don't, if you're not interested in at least one sport then he he thinks that's an indicator of you know um, sort of general interest so if you interview at Johns Hopkins for surgery and you get John Cameron the most famous surgeon in the US make sure you have some knowledge of a sport well, I'd be screwed. Gonna write that I was going to say, you know, we sometimes we try to offer, you know, admissions advice on this podcast. I think that's the most specific it's ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually do have a quick thing I want to ask, because while we're on the subject of medical students and talking about, you know, things that doctors are trying to do or even things, um, you know, over treating. Are these the kinds of things that, you know, us and our listeners as, you know, future doctors of America, are these like things that we can do, you know, actionably in our future practices or in advocacy in order to, you know, help reduce these prices and be advocates for our patients? Absolutely. So what we're trying to do is create some resources in kind of a toolkit at the restoringmedicine.org website. And I go through this stuff in the book, The Price We Pay. How can we be advocates for patients, which is what being a doctor is really all about and should be about. And so we, we tell folks, contact your hospital CFO, talk to your revenue cycle, talk to your board members and your CEO, CEOs. We're trying to um, ask some simple questions like, does my hospital sue low-income patients? What is mm-hmm. the average bill markup at my hospital? Right. These, this is kind of the business of healthcare 101. Um, what's the community benefit or charity care that's delivered? Hospitals will tell you, oh, it's $100 million. What, how do you break that down? What exactly is that? Is that just the money you couldn't collect from the marked up bills? Or how many people were actually told when they came to the hospital in need 
that even though we, you don't have the right insurance or any insurance, we will take care of you to do something that's elective. Now, when they tell you they'll, they'll take care of uninsured people with emergent conditions and the hospitals boast about that, just remind them that there's a U.S. law called EMTALA that requires all hospitals to take care of anybody with an emergent condition. So that's not charity. That's just following the law. Ask a hospital how yeah. often they take care of somebody non-emergent, elective, who comes in, uh, uh, you know, uh, undocumented um, immigrant with a cancer or an uninsured person or someone who didn't qualify for Medicaid but is low income and can't afford the bills. Um, these, this is real charity care, and it's reasonable for all, everyone in healthcare to be doing some charity care, in my opinion. These questions seem like a, a, a quick and easy way to piss off hospital administrators, <laughs> but uh, it sounds like it might be worth it. Mm -hmm. Well, look, we can do it in a polite way. When I've called <laughs> hospital CEOs and said, you know, Wanda got overcharged and I don't think the CT was even necessary, can you look into this? They generally respond uh, when you're polite and cordial. And I think we need to just do more speaking up. If you go to um, ZDog MD, you know, he put out a little thing on air ambulance um, um, gout price gouging and medical bill price gouging. Look at the hundreds of people that threw up their stories, right? This is like all around us. 57% of Americans have been hit hard by a surprise medical bill. One in five Americans has medical debt currently in collections. Mm. Half of women with stage four breast cancer have medical debt collectors harassing them by phone. Is this how we treat women in America with terminal cancer? Half of them, this is from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, recent, recent research paper. That's a disgrace, Yeah. right? We're, we're, this is an incredible profession. It's an incredible art. You guys are walking into an, an amazing, amazing job. And um, this is not who we are. Five signers of the Declaration of Independence were physicians, right? Benjamin Rush, maybe the most famous among them, was a psychiatrist. His patients had schizophrenia. His, his career was destigmatizing demon possession as mental illness. Wow. None of his patients could pay him, but he took care of them anyway because that was the spirit of medicine, right? That's the great heritage that we carry. And when a quarter of Americans now are avoiding medical care because of fear of price gouging, yeah. that's something we need to address. Yeah, that's, that's a real problem, yeah. The word that you keep using, Dr. McCary, is disgrace, and it's such a perfect way to describe this phenomenon. We've really lost our way, and we've lost a sense of what we're supposed to be doing. And it seems like um, it seems like we're at an interesting crossroads socially right now with the rise of millennials and kind of this tipping point between the healthcare industry and consumers or patients where... You know, you've said a lot of really nice things about students. I, I want to add, I want to take this opportunity to say you are so modest. Like <laughs> For all the good work that you're doing, you, you keep giving a lot of credit to the people, you know, that you work with and in particular students. And that's a really nice thing to hear when a lot of um, a lot of disparaging comments are made about the millennial generation. But a lot of things that aren't said often enough is that uh, and I I'm technically a millennial, but I'm like I was born right as the millennial generation started. So I'm like 
kind of an elderly <laughs> millennial. Because um, uh, yeah, I'm 31, so I, I have a hard time relating to like the bulk of millennials. But like one thing that should be said about us is that, you know, we donate in record numbers. We do community service in record numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes we'll throw our business, um, you know, we'll throw our, our money at a business that we know is socially conscious and environmentally conscious, even if that means paying more money. And I think we're, we're at a really, I don't know, an interesting crossroads where this generation is coming up with a deep sense of justice and is perfectly poised to kind of take up this fight that you've been spearheading. Well, and people are just sick of it, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. There's a hunger for justice yeah. and a s- social demographic that values justice. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like a, an interesting time to see this uh, develop. Well, I love it. I mean, you guys are, um, it's beautiful to hear you describe it that way. You know, I, I've often felt that the soul longs for a deep sense of purpose in life. And that's why you'll have insurance company, you know, salespeople and lawyers come up to you every now and then and say, oh, um, Aline and Miranda, you guys are doing something much bigger. I'm just selling stuff. You guys are changing the world. You're helping people. And you see this sort of yearning to have that opportunity to really have a life dedicated to serving others, right? The soul longs for a deep sense of purpose. And I think it's an incredible um, time that we're in where a whole generation is saying, look, we don't want to live like our parents, right? We don't want to sit in some big home staring at the phone, waiting for it to ring. Mm-hmm. You know, so and having true. to mow the lawn. We want to be in a community. We don't need to own a car. We can walk around and meet friends and, and interact. And all the community-based businesses are taking off, right? You name it. Any shared business. We work, Uber, Airbnb, you name it. Any sharing business because people are longing for community. Loneliness is a public health epidemic. And the so new true. generation is seeing it. That's such an astute observation. There are more people dying of suicide now, I think, than ever before. And I think in med school, we were taught that like the number one at risk group are men over 70 um, for suicide. But that statistic is changing radically as more, more and more and more young people are killing themselves. But you really hit the nail on the head as far as like people craving community, craving justice, craving honor. There's a real honor in being healthcare provider and it seems like it's becoming less and less honorable as it becomes more profit driven well and, and you mentioned um uh z-dog md um and one of the things we talked about recently on the show was um his you know a video he put out about how you know burnout about burnout and how um you know basically what that really is is moral injury yeah moral injury um, which I thought was great um, because, you know, as he said in the video, you know, burnout puts the the problem back on the person who's experiencing the problem. You know, it's basically victim blaming. Um, whereas, you know, if you if you reframe your ideas about the problem, you know, it's really a, a problem with the system. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of reminded of something that um, I actually graduated from OU. So thank you for the shout out, by the way. Uh, 
Um, I'm reminded uh, my graduation, actually, uh, former President David Boren said something about, you know, in your future career, don't just go after like money or power or prestige, because if you just go after it for yourself, you're always going to be afraid of losing it. But if you find that you can work for others, then that's what's going to drive you. And I think that kind of as Aline was talking, as you were talking, that reminded me a lot of that, where it's like, you know, this is a career where we have to be driven, you know, by the people we're serving. Well, I love it. And, you know, this sort of fresh look on healthcare that medical students provide is just freaking awesome, right? To, to be a doctor who's been trying to point things out in the medical establishment that we have accepted that we shouldn't accept for a decade now, to have young students come and s say the same things, to, to have them challenge why are we not looking at creating communities to treat loneliness among our seniors? Mm -hmm. Why are we not looking at food as medicine? Why can't we tell somebody the best food they should eat if they have HIV for the condition? Why aren't we studying the impact of meditation on hypertension? Why aren't we looking at rest as a way to immune, boost the immune system? You know, when there are so many of these giant questions that patients are asking, the public is asking, and medicine has basically been has been basically, you know, sort of created this response, oh, there's no level 1A randomized control trial evidence, <laughs> therefore it's yeah. not true or un- <laughs> Yeah. Man, you don't sound like a surgeon. <laughs> well, well, I, um, I, you know, I got to be honest with you, Dave, I've got these battle scars from fighting with the medical journals, and it's I'm really wow. fighting with mm -hmm. the medical establishment. Now, I've published... I don't know, 250 scientific uh, articles in my career. And we're constantly fighting with them about the language. Because if you change the language, then you allow the medical field to be conditioned to accept things. If you call the problem of price gouging and egregious markups and predatory billing mm. that now dominates the medical system, if you simply call it medical debt or bad debt or uh, a charge to cost ratio, which is what the journals insist I write, right? You have to change it to charge to cost ratio. Mm -mm. Okay, we've depersonalized, we've detached. Yeah. If you call something a preventable adverse event, what is that? It's medical care gone wrong, Yeah. right? Words That's matter. an opioid yeah. prescription you shouldn't have gotten. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like one of the major themes of this discussion and of your work, Dr. McCary, is um, truth telling and uh, yeah. and just straight up lying. And I was talking to a friend about this uh, recently, not about healthcare, but something a totally different industry. But it it amazes me that lying isn't against the law more mm -hmm. because, <laughs> you know, a lot oh, of God. these, you know, I'm like, trying to think of the ramifications of that idea. I mean, no one. How would, would ever... I get through my day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's um, I feel like what you're describing is a kind of a, a lack of information that can be exploited for profit. And as we as physicians have stepped away and kind of, you know, there's there's a cultural tendency now of being like, all right, I'm glad you know how to do this. So I don't have to. So I'm just going to leave it to you. But then that creates a vulnerability that someone can exploit for profit. And I feel like all of these, you know, all of these tendencies are kind of coming to a head to the point where 
you know, the most important thing you've mentioned is how much this is hurting the economy. Because every dollar someone spends on healthcare is a dollar they can't spend to buy a house or buy a car or have children. Buy food. Or buy food, you know, mm. like much, much less con like dispensable goods, but like basic things mm. that everyone needs to live. And I think in the long term, you know, the more the middle class falls into poverty because of health expenditures, it really hurts the future of our country. Um, you know, for generations to come, not just for the next 10 or 20 years, but for a really long time. So thank you for, you know, pointing out the need for honesty and the need for transparency, which maybe isn't just for the healthcare industry, but for like all aspects of society today. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, I think students today are demanding transparency of every public institution, be it healthcare or the government, you name it. And it feels good when everything is totally transparent and honest. You know, we're fighting this battle on Capitol Hill. My medical students join me for these fights. We meet with senators and we say, hey, in what industry did you have transparency of prices and then decide, hey, this wasn't a good idea. Let's go back to keeping them secret. <laughs> no, right? So um, I, it is all about honesty. I really appreciate what, what you said. You know, this is about restoring medicine to its mission. It's the, and this project to, to educate medical students and doctors with the book, The Price We Pay, has been to recognize that we can cut through these money games and their games and we can restore medicine to its mission. And that's what I think is exciting. So the movement towards honest healthcare is alive and well, and I'm, I'm really optimistic about it. Well, we've been talking today with Dr. Martin McCary, author of The Price We Pay, due out in September, right? September 9th. September 9th. So go pick that up. Um, thanks very much for hanging out with us today. <laughs> Great to be with you guys. And Aline, Miranda, thanks for being here too. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> and what kind of terrible person would I be if I didn't thank you listeners for making us a part of your week for all your questions and for your supportive t-shirt and cookbook orders. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. We love hearing listener questions and answering them. So send your questions and comments to the shortcodes at gmail.com, or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. And hey, right now, your podcast is open. I know it is. So give us some stars and a positive review, or give us a negative review. That's fine. We can handle it. We'd prefer a positive review. <laughs> The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, Student Government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox. And our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.